Welcome to Real Time Real Talk, a Dexcom podcast dedicated to pharmacists and other healthcare professionals on the front lines, helping people thrive who live with diabetes. So me being able to get an alert that it's predicting my glucose will be less than 55 in the next 20 minutes and to eat some glucose so I don't have to get as low as I could have gone if I didn't get that alert. Or even sometimes I can prevent going low because I'm able to get some glucose soon enough in my body and just go on with my day and not interrupt playing football or trying to catch baseballs with my boys. So those are just a few of the things that I love. Dexcom is the leading developer of real-time continuous glucose monitoring, also known as RT-CGM and other digital technologies to better manage diabetes. Real-time CGM provides critical glycemic metrics for physicians, pharmacists, and diabetes specialists to act upon to help their patients live with as much freedom as possible. Dexcom empowers people to take control of diabetes through innovative, continuous glucose monitoring. Real Time Real Talk is a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. For more information on all Dexcom's technologies, products, and services, please visit Dexcom.com. That's D-E-X-C-O-M.com. Listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at pharmacypodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. Welcome to the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marina Buxov, holistic health coach, clinical herbalist, and functional medicine pharmacist, or just holistic pharmacist for short. Whether you're a healthcare professional helping to support the health of your clients or going through your personal healing journey, I believe you will find yourself right at home with this podcast. My co-hosts and I will be merging the scientific with the holistic all season long, as well as sharing stories that will touch your heart and challenge your mind. Please enjoy the show. Hi there, everyone. Welcome back to the show. We'll be releasing bi-weekly episodes on the Holistic Pharmacy podcast from now on. Last time, you met my new co-host, Dr. Jenna Carmichael, and today I'm airing an interview I conducted with her a little while back while preparing for this season. Dr. Jenna Carmichael is a graduate of the University of Arizona College of Pharmacy. She completed her PGY-1 at the Sierra Nevada VA Healthcare System in Reno and her PGY-2 in Oncology Pharmacy at Geisinger Medical Center at Danville, Pennsylvania. She then spent five years working as a clinical oncology pharmacist specializing in oral chemotherapy, medication, therapy management, and over that time grew that clinic to over 1,000 patients. She also was the PGY2 Oncology Residency Program Director and a clinical researcher. As a high achiever, clearly, over time, Jenna became burned out, unhappy in her career and life, and knew that things needed to change. She was able to find herself again through personal discovery and holistic healing methods. 
Naturally, she wanted to share this knowledge with her patients, but found that the traditional Western medicine structure didn't allow for the combination of all of her knowledge. Dr. Carmichael now runs her own practice as a holistic oncology pharmacist and health coach at Wobbly Arrow Wellness. She works virtually with women on the cancer journey, looking for a different perspective on wellness. She combines her knowledge in the oncology space along with holistic healing methods of meditation, Reiki, and yoga to help empower her clients to choose the path that works best for their goals. She also offers genetic testing services to get a true personalized idea of how her clients process their medications for safe and effective therapy. All right, let's get into the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Holistic Pharmacist. I have with me today as my guest, Dr. Jenna Carmichael, who is a holistic pharmacist and health coach. So welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to uh, talk with you today. Yes, my absolute pleasure. I would love to dive deeper into your story and your journey. I know you have a background in oncology and that really ties into what you're doing today. So um, I'd love to just start by asking you to share about where you grew up and how you became a pharmacist. Yeah, so I grew up in the west of the U.S., so I'm from Reno, Nevada, which is northern Nevada, closer to Lake Tahoe than Las Vegas, <laughs> and both my parents are in medicine, so my mother is a pharmacist and my dad is a dentist, and so I've always kind of had medicine in my life, and my mom's been a huge um, achiever type of personality, and I definitely get that from her, <laughs> and so um, just kind of seeing what my parents were doing, I definitely gravitated more towards that pharmacy medicine side. And so when it came to thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, it, it wasn't about, oh, you have to go to college or anything. It, it was more that, you know, it's like, you're going to college, you better figure mm -hmm. out what you're doing. And you also better figure out what you're majoring in. <laughs> so, so there was high bars and high expectations there. And so for me, I knew I wanted to do healing work, but I had never had any kind of exposure to the natural or alternative quote unquote side of things. And so I went very mainstream. So I went to pharmacy school. Um, I actually applied to both medical school and pharmacy school, and I got into pharmacy school first. So that's where I went. <laughs> oh, wow. And so that's where I ended up. I went to the University of Arizona for pharmacy school, and I didn't realize it at the time, but now looking back, it's kind of been a very interesting thing being the daughter of a pharmacist. Um, my mom is a very famous pharmacist in the hospital pharmacy world. So she actually was ASHP president in 1992, I think it was. Like, I was pretty small. And when I was in residency, she actually won the Harvey A.K. Whitney Award. And so she has just touched, you know, so many different lives and everybody knows her name. 
And I didn't realize that that actually became a disadvantage for me (laughs) when I was in school. Um, I actually remember there was a time when I was in the middle of class and I had a professor who said, oh, we were working on this study with Jenna Carmichael's mother (laughs) to do this data. And while that's interesting, it kind of was like, well, I don't really think that makes me look all that great in front of all of my classmates. (laughs) But like my mother, I also was president of my um, local SSHP chapter when I was in pharmacy school. So I guess the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's really about nurturing that apple. So, you know, it's not that Perhaps some of it is really inherent, but some of it is like you watching your mom be so ambitious and successful that you wanted to mirror that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And seeing how involved she is in her professional organizations and hearing her talk about all of the friends and the people that she knows from practically every state in the country, because she just has people that she's worked with over the length of her career. And so she can pretty much go to any major city and she's going to know somebody in that city that she can call on to be like, Hey, I'm in town. What's going on? So, I mean, I don't really see how that's a disadvantage. Do you mean your classmates were jealous of you? So it actually, it wasn't terrible in pharmacy school, but when I was applying for residency, what I didn't know at the time was that because of her background in residency training, then people were kind of like, holy cow, are we going to take this person on because of who her mom is? And now we have to train her. And so I think like, because she had such high expectations for herself, then of course, everybody else felt those high expectations. And so I, um, for my residency for PGY2, I actually ended up falling out of the match. And so I scrambled and was trying to find a place to go, which is how I ended up in Pennsylvania. Cause that's where I'm currently living. And I remember having to talk to my boss at the time at my PGY1 residency and was like, you need to call these people because they're not going to give me this residency because they're scared because they found out that the person that signed my residency, my then now residency directors, uh, BCOP, her board certification was my mother. (laughs) And so that really had a lot of fear for her because it was a new program and they were really concerned that like it was going to be good enough. (laughs) Wow. So let's talk about the uh, residency experience. So um, first, tell us a little bit about how your pharmacy training went. I mean, um, aside from having a famous mother, like what was the training like for you? What was the educational program program like for you? Um, You mentioned some leadership uh, positions. So what other extracurriculars maybe were you involved in? And then what led you to choose those specific residencies? So pharmacy school for me was pretty good. It was pretty typical. Um, So I was, I'm a joiner. I've always said that. So I was a part of, I think my first year of pharmacy school. So 
uh, I guess let's backtrack. So my, I went to a typical, um, school that had a four-year PharmD program, and then you had to do your bachelor, your prereqs either at the U of A, or you could have done them elsewhere. And so it ended up that our class actually had a very wide variety of different types of students in it. So we had students that already had master's degrees. We had students that had PhDs that were coming in. And so that was really kind of interesting rather than a program that was kind of like you start in part, you start right after high school and then you're kind of with people throughout. So that in of itself was really interesting. Um, we had a school that was really clinical oriented, you know, and I think a lot of my my colleagues now, when they graduated from school, had a lot of clinical knowledge that wasn't necessarily standard because that's a lot of what our professors were really interested in. They were really making sure that we could help treat and diagnose patients if we needed to. We had um, Rick Harrier was one of my professors and he actually recently just passed away. And I remember he was one of the very first pharmacists that was ever trained by IHS, the Indian Health Service, to diagnose patients. And so he had this huge length of history diagnosing and talking to patients and being a provider. And so we left pharmacy school feeling like we were providers. <laughs> and then you kind of come out of school and realize, oh, wait, you're not. <laughs> Yeah, sad so, reality. Yeah, yeah, but it was really inspiring. I think, you know, I think a lot of us went into residency programs and when I was in school, I was um, in a fraternity. So I was in Phi Delta Chi and I also um, was the president of our local SSHP chapter and I was involved with um, IPSF, the International Pharmacy Student Federation, and I love to travel. So uh, anything that I could actually like say was for school <laughs> and travel at the same time, I was all over it. So I went to um, their one of their congresses, which was in Romania, and I went to another one, which was in Bali, and I loved it. Very cool. Yeah, I had no idea that existed. I might have joined as well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. All right. So how did you settle on your residencies then? So for residency, because of who my mother is, it was kind of an assumed thing. If I went to pharmacy school, I obviously was doing residency and she is from the VA system. And I had worked in the VA system as well as a pharmacy technician. And I really thought that because I wanted to be that provider, because that's what my professors at pharmacy school were telling me that I needed to be, then I needed to do that in the VA system. And so for my PGY1 residency, I only applied to VAs. Wow. And so did you get matched? I did. I matched at the VA in Reno, Nevada, which was the program that my mother started. <laughs> cool. So what did you learn there? What were the highlights of that residency? So there I was already interested in oncology and I had a really amazing residency director. And I think that that's one of the best things about residency directors is that they really take their residents under their wings and they really think about what it is that they want to do with the rest of their lives, basically. And so they knew that I liked oncology. And so they threw me in an oncology clinic as an extra. They made sure that my resident project that year was based in oncology and they really wanted to make sure that I was as marketable as possible to get a PGY2. Very nice. So what drew you to this oncology interest? 
Uh, it's an interesting thing. I, I actually don't have a really huge family history of cancer. So when I was in my PG, my fourth year of pharmacy school, my aunt was diagnosed with lymphoma. And I happened to just be on an oncology rotation at the time. So it kind of worked out perfectly. And so she was going through treatment while I was on rotation. And so we could talk about the different things, the different tips that I was learning directly on rotation. And I really saw how amazingly beneficial those little things that I could tell her to say, you know, try this thing or um, do that thing. And I'm sure you know, the other family members were probably doing similar things because we have a lot of medical people in our family, but it really seemed like we kind of connected over that. And so it definitely was something that kind of piqued my interest. And the more I worked with cancer patients, the more I really just felt this camaraderie with them. I just they're, they have this huge health diagnosis that they have that they're, you know, overcoming and looking at. And I just love them so much. I don't know. There's just something about them. And I, I think it's that healer, that caregiver in me that I see that sparrow that needs that little extra boost. And I just want to help them. Yeah, that's certainly palpable. So, okay. How did your PGY1 then set you up for you eventually going to Pennsylvania for the second year. And what was your specialty in the second year? So I really feel like that the PGY1, particularly at the VA, was really wonderful because they are they're cutting edge for a lot of the things that they're doing. A lot of the pharmacy services that the VA is doing is amazing. You know, as a pharmacist, you get to write your own prescriptions. I thought it was, it was crazy to me to kind of look into a patient's profile and then realize that I was the person that last wrote their blood pressure medication. And it, it was, it was a little bit like, Oh, there's a big sense of responsibility when it's your name on that label there. And so a lot of that was, was what that kind of residency really helped with. They were amazing with primary care because that's what they saw and that's what they did. And so I definitely got a really great baseline, how to take care of patients, how to talk to patients, how to really figure out what it is that they need, particularly when they're not really telling you what it is that they need. Wow. So was there a lot of patient counseling that was, uh, you know, um, part of the program? Yes. Yeah. The VA is very big on ambulatory care and I've always been interested more on the ambulatory care side than the inpatient side. Uh Um, I've always been this kind of big picture person. And so I love this idea of let's work together and get your blood pressure under control or at goal over six months rather than, oh, we're inpatient. We have to worry about your potassium. And that's every, you know, two hours we're looking at this thing. And, and I really want that six month experience. rather than that two-day experience. Yeah. Yeah, the micro versus the macro. Okay, so how did you, you know, get up, leave everything behind and go to Pennsylvania after you didn't match and you found this one program to take you? Yeah, I was, that was a really interesting time because I fell out of the match um, and, and scrambled, which that's what, 
when they call it the scramble, it is the most accurate description of anything that I have ever heard because you are scrambling. That whole day was a blur. just really trying to figure out, you know, looking at the, looking at all of the things, applying again, and just really saying like, this is what I'm looking for. And I applied to every program that was available basically. Wow. So then, um, how did you end up with this one in Pennsylvania and how was that whole experience? It was interesting. So I did a phone interview with uh, Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania. Up until that point, I had never even heard of Geisinger. I had no idea where Danville, Pennsylvania was. Had to look it up on a map and realize that it was in uh, the the middle of Pennsylvania, pretty much. Very rural. And so it seemed like an interesting thing to try. I'd never been really that far east before growing up and living in the West. And so it was it was my opportunity to travel. It was my opportunity to kind of see what it was like to live in a different place. And it turns out I really liked it because I'm still out here. Yeah, I mean, from what you said before about loving to travel and having this adventurous spirit, it does sound like, you know, it was a good, um, thing, a good motivation, um, for you, a good reason really to go try something else. Uh, but at the same time, not everybody would, uh, after let's say not matching, find every opportunity to go and try to make it happen anyway. And some people may give up and just try something easier and, you know, like, settle down somewhere with some kind of job because one year of residency is impressive enough already, you know? So what kind of drove you to keep going and go after that second year? To me, it really was that I knew that if I was going to be competitive in the marketplace, that I needed that PGY2 and that this was the best time to do it because I didn't want to get a pharmacist job and start making that big paycheck and then deciding, oh, probably I should have done a PGY2 and then trying to backtrack. And so that was kind of, I was already in student mode. I was already in resident mode. So might as well just keep going. (laughs) And so that was where it was. It's that kind of that sunk cost. I was like, all right, I'm already doing it. I'm already going. So I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. You know, I do see a lot of value for residencies in the clinical and especially in the inpatient setting. So could you speak to why you think it's also valuable for the ambulatory care setting and then what opportunities it sets you up for once you complete both years? Yeah, I think, I think that second year is where you kind of really hit your stride. And so your first year of residency is where you get to be exposed to absolutely everything out there. And so hopefully if you had a program that had a balance between your inpatient and outpatient settings, then at least you got a wide variety of experiences in the different settings. And so then you can kind of say, I really like this one, or I really didn't like this one. And I would tell the residents all the time that it's like, it's more, it's almost more important to know the things that are absolute no's for you than it is to know the absolute yeses, because the no's are the things that are going to drag you down. Those are the ones that if you're there weeks and weeks at a time, particularly if you're working on an inpatient setting and you really don't have a lot of choice about that thing, then that's the thing that kind of makes you not want to keep working. 
And so that's the definite thing that you want to find. You want to find the things that are the absolute yeses, but also the not so really. <laughs> and so that's where PGY1 is great because it tells you all of those things. Now, if you find that one thing that you love so much that you have to keep doing, that's where I think PGY2 is great. If you're kind of like so-so about PGY2, or if you don't have this one thing in your life that you're like, I would die on this blade or, you know, this thing that I just love so much, then I don't think the PGY2 is that a, is that needed. Um, but I think that if you want to specialize, then awesome, go for PGY2. And that's definitely what I found because instead of one month being concentrated on that one thing I love, then I get an entire year looking at all of the nuances. And I think the nice thing about a resident is you get to have that that inquisitive mind. So you get to look at all of the different sides of the thing. So for oncology, I was in the surgical suite and I was in the treatment room and I was in the pharmacy and in all of the different sides, radiation oncology and whatnot. And those are things that when you're working, you don't really get that opportunity to see all of that. Yeah, so it's another way to see the big picture by looking at all the different angles that are at play and interacting and how they're all interconnected and how a patient is moving through the system and touching every single part of it. Yeah, I always want that context. I want to know why things are happening and why does the system move this way and, and allowing allowing yourself to see all of those different facets allows you to see how a patient moves through the system. Because a lot of times patients don't understand that when, you know, if you are admitted to the ER, you know, you go into the ER, how does that work and how, where are you going after that and all of this. And if you as a provider can find that and see what that means, and that's really helpful because then you can help others. Yeah, absolutely. So what was your takeaway or some key takeaways from that experience of uh, the second year in this new state and city? And what were your next steps after completing residency? So residency was really a super big eye opener for me. I loved being in a different place, having all of these new ideas and different people around and just looking at all of the things. So I just, I thought that that was awesome. That's my favorite part of traveling anyway, <laughs> is learning all the new things. Um, but I, I really was, for me, it was an ability to be far enough away from the influence of this famous mother of mine. Um, so it allowed me to kind of come into myself and to be the person that I was hoping to be, the provider I was hoping to be. And so that was really one of the things that I really took away from that was I was finally able to be me. Yeah, for me, I think when you said disadvantage of having a famous mother, uh, you know, it seems like an advantage, but you're right. It would seem like you have these big expectations and big shoes to fill because if your mother achieved something, then, you know, her child should achieve something equally or greater as, you know, what precedence that she set. Exactly. Right. And, and I'm feeling that the whole time I'm, you know, going through school and residency and early on into my career too. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure for sure. <laughs> so after you completed or maybe, you know, during the residency, what were you thinking that you wanted to do after you graduate? 
So my resident project when I was in residency was to start a clinic for people who were taking oral chemotherapy. And I really at the, so at the time that was, uh, 2012, um, the oral chemotherapy was like a new thing on the market. So it was this newer idea. There were a lot of things that were being missed because the patient wasn't coming into the clinic every day. They weren't getting their treatments. They were only getting them at home. And so there were lots of potential side effects. And from a safety standpoint, that was one of the big things that we were really concerned about. And so I loved this idea of mixing now ambulatory care with oncology. And so it was kind of the two things that I really liked the most, which was talking with patients every day, figuring out what was going on with them and how we can help them. And also being in an oncology space. So I was really excited about that whole project. And so then I was offered a position at Geisinger to continue the work of this project. And so I was able to start this clinic. And so that's what I was really excited about because Again, it combined those things that I really loved and I could start something new. And I love starting new things. I was the first resident in this program. So I obviously don't have any fear of failure. <laughs> I do, but um, at least in that kind of supported realm, that was really interesting was to be able to start a new service, to start a new thing and to really shape it in the way that I thought that it needed to be done. Wow, that's really amazing. Congratulations. I wonder if it's still running. Hopefully it is. It is. Yeah, I left there in um, 2019. And at that time, we were managing over a 1000 patients in the whole system. And most of those people were rural. And we did it all through telemedicine. And my philosophy was we have this big healthcare system, we have labs interspersed everywhere. Or if the patient needs to go down the road to a different hospital, we'll find those labs, like, let's make this as easy as possible for this person, because they have enough to deal with as it is they have cancer. They have to now take this pill every day. They have to remember to take it. They have to deal with all the side effects. Like let's have them and see them where they're at in their home. And it turns out now that might've been more innovative than I realized. <laughs> Absolutely. Look at you, you know, spearheading something that is so, you know, now you can't do anything without that, without long distance <laughs> telehealth and telemedicine. So you were definitely ahead of your time there. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? But yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it should be as easy as possible for people like removing one stressor because they're, everybody's already under so much stress, especially somebody that is, um, you know, undergoing a very serious treatment for a very serious illness. So the more, you know, convenient we can make it for them and the less stressful, um, you know, they would feel more supported and it would be um, more conducive to following up with them more regularly rather than sporadically. Yes, exactly. And we would have patients who now, you know, we would be calling them every week, they're getting blood work, all these things, you know, and now we're teaching them how to read their own labs. We're teaching them what are the symptoms and the things that you need to be on the where on the lookout for and to be aware of. And that was my thought was, you know, 
we know that when we educate patients, they're only going to remember 20 minutes worth or 20% of even whatever we tell them. But now I have an opportunity to talk to them every single week, which means that every opportunity I get to talk with them, I'm going to add a little bit of value. I'm going to add a little more information. I'm going to tell them about their disease or if they have other questions about other ways that they can help with this disease process. That's what I was doing every day. Yeah, absolutely. So you stayed on with the same hospital and continued to provide the program that you piloted until mm -hmm. 2019? Yeah. So in 2019, um, I was decided that I needed to leave. Um, and that was a personal decision. Um, prior to that, the clinic was going really well. They, you know, the providers wanted more and more and more and more, and I couldn't provide all of that. And I kept asking for help from my management and the, it just kind of didn't come. <laughs> and so, um, at that time also personally, I was going through coaching and I was really trying to figure out, how to be happy because here I was, I was a residency program director for our oncology residency. I was doing clinical research and I was doing my normal job of being an MTM um, oncology pharmacist. And it was too much. I just couldn't take all of the stress. I couldn't take all of the amount of expectations that had been piled on me, hopefully trying to be the person that I wanted to be and be happy. And I wasn't. So I also was trying to kind of figure out for myself how to find that happiness. And that's kind of part of one of the reasons why I ended up leaving that position. Yeah. I mean, certainly the jobs that you were doing, um, take a lot of work and effort and you can't physically, you know, manage all of that as just one human being effectively or as effectively as you'd like, because when you try to focus on too many things, you obviously, you know, will lose out here and there on some other things because everything is a give and take and everything, you know, um, if you're excelling in one area, something else has got to give sometimes. So it's always important to find that balance for yourself and, as much as you would have liked to, you know, excel and meet everyone's expectations and exceed them, you know, it's important to realize that, you know, there, you can't, you know, you physically can't and you do need help and you're just one person and as great of a job as you're doing, you, um, you can't do an excellent job unless there's more hands on the team. Oh yeah. And, and we, the clinic grew, we got more people involved, but then there were more responsibilities. And, and so that was really the main thing for me was how can I not turn into this person that works all of the time that hates their life. I really, you know, I, I saw myself on this path and I could see the future and I did not like that. You know, I could see myself as climbing the ladder and continuing on and becoming director of this or, or whatnot, and just still dreading going to work. And I never wanted that to happen because I loved working with these people and this patient population too much that I didn't want that to happen. And so I looked at everything. I tried to figure out how to, how to do all of the things. And, and it turns out, you know, well, we can't do them all, but we, we, 
it was an interesting process because <laughs> I'm still trying to do all of the things, obviously, but um, I'm better at choosing the things that I need to do right now versus all the other times. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely an ongoing journey of self-evolution, right? Um, so what gave you the idea to work with a coach when you were kind of unsure of how to find this happy medium and this balance? that you were seeking? Yeah. So for me, it really started with, um, so I've been a chronic dieter my whole life. Um, I grew up seeing my mother diet and, and it's just culturally, you know, part of the way that it is. And I think my very first diet was when I was in like middle school, probably. And from that point forward, it was everything I ate, everything I thought about was food. And it also was just everything was good or bad. There was this huge black and white thinking about the way food was. And for years, I just constantly, that was in the background of everything that I was doing. And I finally got to a point where I was like, I just, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I don't know why I'm continuing to do this. I kind of was like self-help had kind of come into my realm. Um, and what really did it for me was I was at the gym after a 6 a.m. boot camp class that I made myself go to for months and months and months. Um, and I was cleaning the equipment and I slipped on some of the cleaner and I fell and I hit my backside and I fell hard. Oh my God. And I was like, no idea what to do. I was, I've always been a super healthy person. So I really had no idea like what was really going on. So I kind of picked myself up, you know, cause all right, we'll just got to keep moving. And I realized that I was pretty hurt because I, the, throughout the rest of the day, my back was pretty, was, was sore. And, and it really struck me that, holy crap, if I can't exercise. And that means that I can't lose the weight, which then means that now I have to think of something else to do. <laughs> right. Because of course that was the thought process that I had in my head at the time was always about like, what's the next diet? What's the next thing to help me become more acceptable to become smaller, not this like larger than life kind of persona that I have. <laughs> so how can I become this more acceptable quote unquote person? And so then if I couldn't work out, then we were in trouble. So at the time I was kind of looking for alternative ways of working out. I had done yoga in college and I ended up um, walking into a yoga studio and I did yoga with this instructor and it was like coming home. I walked into that studio and I met her for the first time. And I was like, hello, I've seen you before, even though I've never met you before. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. So it was instantly, I was like, I don't care who this person is. I'm everything <laughs> that you're doing. I'm all about it. And so she offered life coaching and, and that was right about that time. I was looking for something to change. Obviously something had to change because I couldn't continue to keep over exercising the way that I was trying to turn into this person that I never was meant to be anyway. And, and that's what I learned in coaching. <laughs> <laughs> was all of that kind of thing. 
Right. That's amazing. So how long did you work with her and how did you yourself become a coach? So working with her, I worked with her for four years or so a while. And she also does yoga. And so I went through a yoga teacher training program with her. And then, um, she, through that, I learned how to teach meditation and how to do meditation myself. And, and I loved yoga. I love, I think for me, it's that expression of being able to move out those feelings because I never, I never did that. I never knew that you could, you know, dance something out or feel it out. You know, when you're in a downward facing dog, those your back of your legs and your hamstrings are just screaming at you that very first time you do it. But then as you continue to do it, you're like, Oh my gosh, this feels so amazing. <laughs> it hurts so good. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and those are all of the things that I learned through yoga teacher training. And I just loved it so much. And really I did it though, for me, I didn't really want to teach it. It was more me just being able to say that I could do it for myself. Yeah, that is so interesting. And so um, many different modalities are out there for us to explore. And, you know, it's not one size fits all. And yoga may not be for everyone. And, you know, dance might not be for everyone. Uh, one type of therapy could work for somebody and not for another person. But it's that exploration, which makes it um, accessible for you to finally match up with that frequency, like you were saying, and actually feeling like, yes, I'm coming home to this. This is right for me. And really resonating with something that is making a true difference to yourself and instead of seeking for like that outside um, accreditation or accolade, you know, or, you know, that degree or whatever the case is, you decide to go deeper just because you feel called to it and not because of any kind of external validation. Exactly. And I, you know, they, there's all these things about this idea of like, when the right time comes that teacher will show up. Well, that's what happened for me. I was definitely seeking, looking for help. And here she was, and she just happened to really be able to see me for where I was and also be able to help me see myself for where I was as well. Yeah, that's amazing. So how did you become a holistic pharmacist and health coach? That is an interesting idea. Um, so through coaching, I really, um, I really thought that, man, if I could learn all of these cool things about myself, why couldn't I be able to teach other people how to do this? And I was still working in the clinic at the time when I was going through all of this. And so then it just naturally made its way <laughs> into my patient interactions. And, and I was seeing that, of you know, I was gravitating more towards alternative health and towards herbs and kind of was feeling that maybe, you know, as a healer, I was supposed to be an herbalist rather than a pharmacist and that pharmacy was close, but not quite there. And I still really believe that having this education that I has, have as a pharmacist has been really valuable for me, but I also was trying to think of how can I expand this to find a way that I can be comfortable with all of these new things that I'm learning about myself and how can I shape my life in a way that 
still allows me to have that patient interaction that I'm looking for, but also to do it in the way that I wanted to, because I was finding that, you know, adding on all of these kind of holistic or mind body type of things wasn't exactly what a lot of people were interested in. Some people were, but some people weren't, and that's perfectly fine. But being able to work with those people, of course, that want to do those things, that was what I was interested in. And so that's kind of one of the reasons why I left my job at working at the hospital was I wanted to pursue this business and to kind of really see what I could make of it because this is the time to do it. Because <laughs> if we're going to do anything, we have to do it now. Yeah. <laughs> There's no time, just the present. Uh, I love the question that you posed to yourself about how can you integrate all the different levels of knowledge available to you. So, you know, that allopathic conventional medicine training uh, with, you know, what you're resonating with on a more visceral and body level that's, you know, you really feel that in an empirical way and you're experiencing it. So there are so many different ways of accessing information and also levels of knowing and understanding. So when you're actually seeing and feeling the results for yourself, you know, you really see and feel the power of them on and really the, the changes are evident. So even though we value, you know, clinical evidence of randomized controlled trials and all of these things, Sometimes a case study, as I like to say, you know, if you're the case study, you know, it's very close to your own heart and um, it's very significant, you know, if you can really sense a real difference in yourself, then those results are relevant and clinically significant. I agree. And I also think too, that the more that I looked at the, the more holistic models of healing, our traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, Western herbalism, all of these, they've been around for thousands of years. And it does, you know, from, from my academic thought process, I'm like, well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be continuing to use these things for thousands of years if they didn't work on some level, if people didn't feel that they had some sort of benefit. And so to me, when I look at those sorts of things, that's evidence enough for me to see that they've been in use for thousands of years. They are safe and effective when used properly. And so that to me is like, ah, that looks fine to me. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like what you were saying about dieting. It's like every, you know, once in a while, there's this new fad diet that comes out and everybody drops everything and starts believing this new fad. But really you can sense or you can tell when something is truly worth trying is if it's been around for a long time, if it has longevity and if it has um, years and lots of observational evidence behind it rather than some fad that somebody's promoting for one reason or another that, you know, is like a spark and then it disappears. And then we learn new things that disprove things. And that's what science is all about. It's all about observing with an open mind, not having a bias or preconception, and then really looking at the evidence without trying to shift it one way or another. So I absolutely agree with really looking at the longevity of things to see whether or not they are worth looking into and they have merit in them. And also we know that humans 
have this um, ability to tap into their power of belief. And um, there's the placebo and the nocebo effect, which is very, very, you know, this confounding variable that is present in all clinical studies that is huge and plays, you know, maybe 30% of a role in the study. So it's, you know, it's wonderful to tap into that power rather than try to get rid of it, in my opinion. So it's something that we can actually access. Um, and the more we tap into those powers, the less of a need for these external stimuli, because we can really, if we harness these powers of awareness and thought and um, ways of thinking and shifting our patterns, we can change our physiology. So um, in my opinion, we should max out and tap into all of these tools that are free and available to us um, before we go into bringing the big guns, you know, <laughs> of the chemicals and, and things like that. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think like when I look at the people and the clients that I'm working with now, that's one of the things that they're really interested in. It's we have these big gun chemos where, you know, we're talking about the biggest of the big really <laughs> in terms of toxicity potential and other things. And, and so, but they're still saying to themselves, well, what am I supposed to eat now? And what are the foods that potentially could harm or help me? Or if I wanted to increase my energy naturally, can I do those things? And they ask their physicians and the doctors don't know because they weren't taught that in school and they're too busy <laughs> doing their own thing, learning the new, um, all the new technologies and drugs that are coming on the market. And so it's not really the doctor's fault either, but looking at the longevity of food, for example, right? Knowing what foods are good to help you move forward when your body needs that rest, that needs that help, that cuddling, all of those things that your body needs because you need a hug when you go through chemo. It's very taxing to the system. And so what are the things that we can add on? And those are the things that I'm really interested in right now. Yeah. So how did you... Uh, you know, expand your knowledge base to touch on the herbs and all the other modalities. I know we talked about your yoga teacher training, but how else did you add in these things into your tool belt and how do you work with patients now? Yeah. So I, um, so I learned herbs on kind of not like a super huge level. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm at the point in my life now where I'm trying to tell myself that there's really no finish line right now that I need to worry about. And so I'm trying to learn herbs in a holistic way. Um, I find that I'm a hands-on person, particularly when it comes to herbs like that. And so I'm really trying to grow them in my garden and learn about them as much as possible. I worked with a farmer last year and had some official training with some things that were growing in our area and have picked up as much as I possibly can, just trying things for myself too. Cause I was really trying to heal myself. That was the main thing I was trying to do was to try to help with all of the stress that I was under and really trying to find things that were going to be beneficial for me. So I of course was the Guinea pig for all of the things <laughs> and I loved it. And I continue to keep growing and trying things out. And that's the main 
that's the main thing for me right now with herbs. I definitely want to continue my studies with that and find more, um, official hands-on programs and things like that and learning as much as possible. Um, but I also had us, um, through my yoga teacher training, I learned meditation and how to, um, be a meditation guide and to do yoga nidras, which is, a a yogic sleep is kind of what a yoga nidra is. So it's a little more on the hypnosis level. And then also I, um, am a, let's see, I'm a, I'm not a Reiki master as of yet, but I am almost on that level. So I'm a Reiki two, three practitioner as well that I learned through my first coach. And, um, I love this idea of energy healing. That something was really powerful when I learned how to, how to do all of those things and to realize that, everything that you touch has the potential to, you can heal or you can hurt. And it, it's all about your intentions and the energy that you're putting out. And that was really an amazing thought process. Cause I was really, I think being from that pharmacy mindset, you're just so very analytical and that's everything that you're thinking about. And so it took me a long time to really get into my emotional side and to get into that side, to learn all of these things and to be comfortable with expressing how, how I do all of these things for myself and how to incorporate those things for my clients. So for my clients, I do a lot of meditations. Um, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching with them as well. And a lot of it is strategy. How do we, how do we set you, uh, set you up for success? You have this type of symptom that you're concerned about from your chemo. And we know that it happens two, three days after chemo. So how do we set you up for success? How do we give you support emotionally? How do we give you support physically? How do we make sure that if you don't feel like cooking, that you have food in your freezer. So that way you can make sure that it's ready for you rather than having to run down the block to go to the, the drive-through or anything like that. And, and so that's a lot of what um, I'm doing with clients right now. And then we're also trying then to tap into the deeper parts of life <laughs> and things like um, our subconscious desires and of those feelings of unworthiness, those feelings of not enoughness. Those are things that a lot of times as women, we have a hard time with that. It's, it's something that kind of seems to be kind of ingrained in us through our society. And a lot of times we just don't realize that that's what we're doing. And so a lot of the women I work with wouldn't, wouldn't tell you out of the gate that, oh, I'm feeling unworthy. And I, for me, it was the same thing, right? I didn't, I never thought that I was unworthy. That idea didn't really pop into my head of being, oh, well, I'm doing all of the people pleasing that I used to do and doing all of the things that I was trying to get along. To me, that was just I'm just, this is what you do to get ahead in life <laughs> and realizing, no, that there are things called boundaries <laughs> and that we can put those things in place and that it actually ends up being better for us in the long run, even though it may be uncomfortable right at that moment. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of those things that you were talking about, I wanted to kind of go back and touch on. So when you were talking about, you know, being your own primary patient, that's exactly what I always talk about. And there is no better way to learn than experiential, you know, knowledge, as I was talking about, like you get this empir empirical knowledge that is ingrained when you actually experience it and embody it 
rather than reading about it, you know, thinking about it. Uh, like you said, like, you know, we spend a lot of time in our brain, you know, thinking and rationalizing, but when you actually experience it and feel it, it's a totally different level of knowing and understanding. So I'm always a proponent of experimenting, you know, for example, if you're studying herbs and you really want to get um, to the bottom of what they're doing, you could read about them. You know, there's a lot of literature out there, um, a lot of ways to look at a formula and to figure out the properties and the phytochemicals. But when you actually drink it and notice what's happening in your body and feel those effects. And, you know, most of us may not be able to feel it right away because they are subtle. Um, so depending on, you know, what you're drinking and the potency of the herb and, you know, the quality and things like that, um, the concentration, a lot of different factors, but they tend to work in more subtle ways. So it does take a little bit of dropping into your heart center and grounding and, you know, being more connected with your body. And it is a practice. Absolutely. But once you make it a practice and you um, then develop a habit and then, you know, it becomes easier to drop down there and tap into that. And um, it becomes like a conversation with yourself um, that is easier to have. Um, because you're establishing those, you know, neuronal connections over time. So whatever we practice is what we become good at. So we can't expect, like, if we've never done this before, you know, may not work at first and it may be too subtle, but eventually you build this relationship um, with yourself and you can really tap into, um, you know, feeling what it's doing in the body physically. And, even if you don't, but say you take an herb for a prescribed, you know, dosage for duration of time, at the end of that time frame, you probably will feel a difference. And a lot of times we may even forget how bad we used to feel. And we would just be like, oh, it didn't work. I feel the same, but we forget, you know, how bad did we feel before? And that's why it's important to also have like a comparison chart, um, you know, uh, some kind of, um, levels that we subjectively rate um, on how bad we're feeling the beginning of the therapy and then compare it to some outcomes just so we are um, observing those effects and really seeing whether there is a difference and experimenting with yourself I think is you know really fun and provides you the data you know and the proof right. in the pudding because you're actually seeing those results and experiencing those results. So um, it, for me, it's more valuable than reading something, you know, um, because I'm actually like feeling it and I can't deny it once I experience it. So um, I think it's very important, like you were saying, to work with local plants and work it with your hands if possible, you know, actually incorporate them in all parts of your routine if possible, rather than having it a be a, a competing industry to the pharmaceutical industry where it's like take this instead of that because it's more natural but you're also using it in the exact same model of like ordering it online in a package or whatever the case is but actually having this relationship with it and turning to local plants and guides and wisdom I think is very important and I think that's where herbalism shines when we do relationships and communities and, you know, exchange knowledge and have that intention as you were talking about 
um, behind what we're doing and being ethical and sustainable as well. So I think it's very ingrained in herbalism, this kind of philosophy and treating it the same way as the pharmaceutical industry is just, you know, it's not herbalism <laughs> anymore if you, if you do that. So um, I love that. And speaking of which, can you talk to us about what's going on in your shelves in the background? Right, right. <laughs> Let's see. So up there is some tea that um, those are going to my clients actually. And that's tea that I made from my garden. So it has mint and uh, Tulsi in it. And what else is in there? Sage, all kinds of good stuff. So nice herbal tea. Um, yeah. Over here, all of my herbs, <laughs> the herb storage over there. So things that I've bought, things that I've grown, things that I've dried because I actually, I have a dehydrator as well, which is an amazing tool <laughs> for if you're into herbs like I am and I'm sure like you are. And so anything that we find along the side of the road, sometimes you're like, Ooh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, hopefully a very, um, distant side where no cars like right. <laughs> all over but yes absolutely so yeah I think it's fun you know to just be curious like you were saying to be open-minded to experience the healing for yourself and um not always you know assume that you know one level of knowing is all there is and just like be open to other levels and um, like you said, you know, finding a balance and um, the fact that what you mentioned about women, I think we definitely are taught to um, think of ourselves as like second class citizens, right? You know, that follows the male and is subservient. And there's just many different examples of what how that shows up. But I think that's also why a lot of us are driven to, you know, prove that we are worthy by getting all these external validation accolades and, you know, adding to our worthiness. But if we don't feel it internally, there's nothing external that will heal us and fill us up. Exactly. And I used to, I used to be really I used to be a person who really wanted the accolades. I wanted, you know, I wanted to be distinguished pharmacist of the year, you know, like any of these sorts of things. And time and time again, I would, you know, like, oh, darn, I didn't win that. And I had to think to myself, though, it's like, well, I never applied. I never I never actually told anybody that this was something that I wanted. So how how am I expecting this thing to just magically appear if I don't actually say that that's something that I want? And that was definitely something that I realized was me telling myself that I wasn't enough, that I wasn't worthy of this thing because I didn't actually say out loud that that was something that I was interested in. Yeah. It's almost like we're afraid to admit our desires to ourselves and then we keep it a secret and then the universe can't help us uh, <laughs> at that point because it's even a secret from the universe. So we do have to um, acknowledge and vocalize, write it down, share it with someone, you know, say an affirmation or a mantra and be proud of our desires and like, you know, tap into that feeling of how good it would feel to have our desire fulfilled, mm -hmm. you know, rather than being afraid to even have that desire in the first place and questioning it and doubting it.
Yeah. Well, because if you don't say it, and then if it doesn't happen, then you're not disappointed, right? right. We're <laughs> there's always a reason we're protecting ourselves from future failures by not even trying in the first right. place. <laughs> which is, you know, which I just think is so interesting is, you know, you look at the data that says that men versus women in the same idea is that men ask. And that's really the difference is that they've been empowered to say that it's okay to ask for the things that you want in life. And for some way, some reason, us women have found that to not be the case, right? We don't ask. And that's really the main difference. It's not that men are better. It's not that they is that they are more qualified. They just speak up and we don't. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. And that's because of this conditioning that <laughs> we should be staying in some sort of place that was designated for us and not go outside of those, you know, very narrow definitions. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your personal and professional journey with us. Dr. Jenna Carmichael. Um, I'd love to go to just a quick rapid fire round if you're up for it. Sure. Okay. So question one is what's the number one thing somebody could do to improve their quality of life right now? Meditate. Good one. A lot of people have said that. So power of repetition. Um, <laughs> There's something to it, people. And number two, again, I don't ask this for, for, from everyone, but I would really love your perspective on what you think needs to happen for our healthcare as a whole, you know, as the system that, you know, you were part of for many years, how can we really improve it? Like what's one or two things that is missing right now that could really be helpful? There's so many. Wow. I would say, I think the first thing that we really need to look at is our providers. Our providers are burnt out. They are on, they're probably maybe as unhealthy or more than the patients that they're taking care of because there has been no thought process in our healthcare system about caring for our caregivers. And so we really need to make sure that the people who are providing all of this care have the support that they need to do their job and to love what they do. Cause of course people go into healthcare because they want to help people. And then unfortunately the system brings them down. And, and so anything that we could do to help provide care and support to our caregivers, that's something that I think that we definitely need. And then I think another thing to kind of think about is incorporating holistic health into, into our healthcare. It, I think our Western medical system is one of the only medical systems that doesn't really take into account the full body. We don't really take into account our gut feelings or how our emotions really guide and affect the way that we feel and act. And that's definitely something that I feel that it, we have a remiss. That's something we don't have in our system. And the importance of that is understanding that you know, you have anger and that's okay, but we need to do something about that, both physically in your body, but also emotionally as well. 
Yeah. Like what you were saying before about moving through and moving through the feeling and allowing the feeling to move and pass through you, you know, when it's stuck in a place, that's when it causes stagnation and pain. But once you allow it to just be, you can actually begin to process and heal it without, you know, when you're just holding onto it so tightly, there's no chance of processing or healing at that point. And then what you were talking about also before about the yoga nidras and getting more into like this hypnosis and subconscious, I think that's another layer that is missing from um, healthcare that could be really beneficial. Just the way we talk to patients and to ourselves, whether we're a provider or a patient, you know, the way we really have been taught to talk is not um, very supportive in a lot of instances to, you know, keeping morale up or, um, you know, just being um, supportive in a lot of ways. It's like we're so clinical, you know, that there's just no room for warmth or support because there's, you know, they're mutually exclusive or something like that. But I don't think that has to be the case. And I think, you know, there a lot of can be done with the language that we're using and um, neuro-linguistics and programming and subconscious retraining that will really help speed up um, this healing process for people. Yeah, I agree. And I, and as somebody who has experienced all of those things in my healing journey, I have just seen how amazing they are. And that's one of the reasons that I continue to keep learning because I think to myself, oh, well, this thing was really awesome and it works so well for me, then I have to figure out how this is. And so that way I can help others. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, we talked a lot about your different hobbies, but what would you say is like your number one pastime? I am a cook. All the way. I love cooking. Um, I think, you know, because I have been a dieter for so long, I was always trying to re-engineer things to make them diet friendly and all of this. And when I found intuitive eating, that was one of the main reasons why I was able to get off of the diet bandwagon. And then it turned into, well, what fun, crazy, amazing thing can I make? <laughs> and so I, I ferment, I've made wine and beer, I've made pickles and all kinds of other sorts of ferments and love kind of, um, just seeing what kind of amazing creations you could make in the kitchen. And I love using fresh foods and making sure that all of my garden veggies are used up and all of those sorts of things. So I'm constantly thinking about what are we going to eat today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I saw your Facebook cooking videos in your group. So those are great. I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and fermenting is like next level healthy, right? <laughs> so it's like, you know, making your own pre and probiotics right in your kitchen. And those are actually the most beneficial species that you need because they're made in your area rather than, you know, bottled up and packaged and all of that stuff. And right. so... Um, that's awesome. So that brings me to my next question, which is what is your favorite thing to cook? I always get that question and I never know because I love cooking whatever it is that I'm cooking right now. So right now, my favorite thing to cook would be anything that's coming out of the garden. Um, so we're getting lots of tomatoes. So I made tomato sauce the other day and I just love, I love transforming something that was a raw ingredient into something that is delicious and amazing. And so my favorite thing to cook is the thing that I'm cooking right now. <laughs> 
love that answer. And what about your favorite thing to drink? I'm a tea drinker. Um, I actually had to give up coffee because it really didn't agree with me and I have enough energy as it is. <laughs> so I really didn't need the caffeine boost. And so herbal tea is my favorite. I drink it all day long. Um, and then it's just water, but yeah, I'm a tea drinker. Awesome. High five girlfriend. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Jenna, for coming on to the show and again, sharing with us. It's been a pleasure. Um, can you just tell the listeners how they can connect with you and learn more about your work? Yeah. So I have a website. Um, my, my company is called Wobbly Arrow Wellness. And so my website is www.wobblyarrowwellness.com. Um, I am offering uh, right now a coaching program. That's a three month group coaching program for women on cancer treatment and who are looking for holistic solutions to their side effects and who are hopefully help, hoping to kind of put themselves first. So that way they can heal and that way then they can continue to keep caring for their family and be around for their kids and their grandkids and hopefully those great grandkids that are going to come way, way down the line. Um, so that's where I'm at. I also have a Facebook group for anybody who's on cancer treatment, women on cancer treatment, or those who are helping them out. So um, that's called Relief Along Your Recovery. And we're doing Facebook Lives in there. There's lots of great content and um, holistic solutions and also with a pharmacy mindset as well. What are those things that we can do because we're that in that between space that we're kind of in that no man's zone. There's not a lot of information about how to mix these two separate things together. And so we're really just trying to find the best thing that works for everybody. Yeah. Well, I love the work that you're doing. So I'll definitely make sure to share that uh, in the show notes, all those links for people to click on. And again, thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful week ahead. Thank you so much. It was wonderful talking with you. Thank you for tuning in to the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed creating it. If you learned something new from it, I'd love if you could leave us a five-star review and share it with a friend who might love it too. You can find me on any of the podcast and social media platforms by looking up Holistic Pharmacist or Dr. Marina Booksov. Thank you for your support and see you next time.